So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how's this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts, the podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch and take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your mental health professional with any questions and seek care if needed. The content and clips in today's episode may contain explicit language. Thank you for joining us today for a very special episode. We're super excited about today's session where we'll be covering not one, but a whole universe of movies and featuring our very first podcast guest. Before we introduce our guest, let's talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or as it's known, the MCU. The MCU is a shared universe focused on a series of superhero films produced by Marvel Studios, and the characters are based on the Marvel comics. This universe was established by crossing over common plot themes, settings, characters, heroes um, with each other. And Marvel Studios at this point has produced and released 23 films with at least 14 more in various stages of development, which is just crazy. Wow. Um, I didn't realize that. That's so many. (laughs) So many. It is the highest grossing film franchise of all time. So as you can imagine, the MCU is very expansive and large, so we will not be covering it all today. Um, And we might even discuss additional movies or characters in the future. And also, full disclosure, to prepare for this episode, we did not go and watch all 23 movies that are already out there. So we're basing this on the times we have seen these movies and pulling clips and looking up articles and books and kind of other different resources. We did not go back and watch all of the movies to prepare for today's session. Definitely not. Dr. Fran and I have seen many of the movies at various time points. We did some refreshing, but we we have not gone and rewatched all of them. <laughs> I will say about a year ago, I went to a MCU trivia. And so I did, um, in preparation for that trivia night, watch as many as I possibly could get my hands on for free through different streaming services. But it's been a while. Wow. And I know currently, at least as a plug, the current Avenger movies or all of the Avenger movies are on Disney Plus currently. So that's always if you're wanting to go and watch some of the movies, you can check them out there. So today we are going to narrow it down a little bit and just talk about two of the characters from the universe, Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, and Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, and specifically the Tom Holland version of Spider-Man, because you guys likely know there have been multiple different iterations of Spider-Man produced by different companies. But today we're talking about the MCU version. Yes, and as Dr. Fran mentioned, we have seen the movies in the past or kind of refreshed our memories or watched clips and read up on them. I additionally do want to make a short... um, uh, plug for a resource that we use the book superhero origins by robin s rosenberg phd we'll put some information related to that on our website as well in case you want to check it out and maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about what the book is because i know we've talked a lot about using it as a resource not only for our podcast but just our listeners might find it interesting as well 
Yeah, so the subheading for the book is called What Makes Superheroes Tick and Why We Care. So it kind of discusses the origins of the superheroes, and it's really cool because it actually takes a very, um, it it takes a deep dive into like the comics, the history behind the characters, um, and really what makes the character who they are as a hero and why we're invested in them or what we see in them, um, either in ourselves or in others. So it's a really cool look. It it covers about 13 of some of the major characters included in that are Iron Man and Spider-Man who we're talking about today. Awesome. So for all of our comic book or superhero fans out there, sounds like a good resource. Definitely. So let's go ahead and start off with Iron Man. So Tony Stark. Tony Stark describes himself as a genius, a billionaire, a playboy, and a philanthropist. (laughs) Quite the uh, resume there. Yeah, and I mean, he doesn't really have to describe himself for you to get that picture, right, of at least the latter half of the description of the billionaire and playboy philanthropist, allegedly, but you learn very early on in his you know, story arc that he has all this money, he, you know, lives a very lavish lifestyle, and he's not afraid to show it. He's very proud of that, right? He's very proud of kind of being on his own, being independent, creating all of this like technology and weapons and kind of doing what he wants to do and being with who he wants to be with and just kind of continuing down this road. And we do get some of an origin story. And actually, interestingly, Iron Man was one of I think it was the first um, MCU movie. And so, you know, Iron Man's been around for a long time and the movies have been popular for a very long time. So I feel like a lot of people know Iron Man probably the most of a lot of the characters in the MCU universe. But we do learn a little bit about his origin story through the movies. Definitely. And even more reason as to why we can't go too in-depth about Iron Man, just because, like Dr. Fran mentioned, uh, Iron Man 1 is the first movie in the MCU, um, and Iron Man is woven into all the Avengers and various of the other films. Um, So, you know, at one point, Iron Man or Tony actually even meets his father in the future, um, but we do learn, based on his background, he describes being from a family where he had a very absent and cold father, felt kind of like they didn't, his father didn't think very highly of him, What do you remember about your dad, huh? He was cold. He was calculating. He never told me he loved me. He never even told me he liked me. So it's a little tough for me to digest when you're telling me he said the whole future was riding on me and he's passing it down. I don't get that. We're talking about a guy whose happiest day was when he shipped me off to boarding school. And his parents end up dying in a car accident when he's 21 years old. Um, His father is the original... I guess, owner or CEO, whatever you would call it, of the Stark, of Stark Industries, which after his father dies, Tony kind of takes up the helm and takes over the company at a very young age. And differently from a lot of the other superheroes, he comes um, upon his powers, we'll say, in a like unique way, right? So we won't get totally into it. A lot of people have seen the movie and kind of know the general idea. Um, but it does have this long-lasting impact on him and that he forever is living with this, you know, arc reactor due to the shrapnel in his um, chest. And so that's just kind of an interesting piece that he's always having to juggle. You know, he's he gets this benefit of having this, you know, chest plate in that can help him power his suit and all these different pieces. But then he's also constantly having to be really careful about what he does in order to prevent himself from dying. 
And this is a common arc throughout Tony's um, storyline, right? So he interestingly does place the arc reactor in himself to keep the shrapnel from his heart and keep him alive, and then creates the suit to escape when he's held captive in Afghanistan. Um, and really, it kind of all builds from there. Uh, interestingly, as someone who does specialize in health psychology, it's kind of interesting to think of Tony almost as having a chronic medical condition. So, you know, he has to maintain the electromagnet that's keeping the shrapnel away from his heart, keeping him alive. He has to make sure it's always charged. It really like impacts his like daily functioning and how he moves forward. Um, so I think kind of thinking about it in that way is really interesting too, um, because he derives power from that as we've seen as, or as we know. Um, but it also is this additional thing that he has to content, consider and maintain for his livelihood and for his life. Which he's not always the most consistent or um, diligent at. So he could definitely use, you know, some of your intervention, Dr. Sam, working with him on increasing his adherence or, you know, ability to be consistent with those things. Yeah, some self-management and some coping yeah. strategies, maybe. <laughs> Speaking of coping strategies, so then we flash forward to Iron Man 3 and we see a little bit of, you know, a shift in Tony. And we had seen, I think, a little bit of this in previous movies, potentially like PTSD type reactions to Afghanistan or some of the other, you know, traumatic events that he's been through. But in Iron Man 3, we start to see even more anxiety, which seems a little unusual coming from Tony, who often comes off as this very confident, I don't really care about anything, nothing really phases me, um, this kind of cavalier attitude. And then we see, you know, a more vulnerable side of him where some of the pressures um, and worries about protecting other people start to get to him. And not only is it unusual for Tony Stark, I also think what's really cool about that is heroes in general, right? Though even the term hero, it kind of implies that they don't have vulnerability or difficulties. But Tony Stark, at the end of the day, is a man um, who has been through some very scary things, right? Being held captive, almost dying, um, working really hard to protect the world and his loved ones. And after a really big battle, uh, the Avengers versus Loki, um, the Battle of New York, as they call it, we do see he has this increase anxiety and worries about not being able to keep um, others safe and protect those that he's close to and he loves. And he's um, his suit at one point even diagnoses him with having anxiety attacks. So I think it's really interesting to see that more vulnerable side of Tony. Check the heart, check the, check the, is it the brain? No sign of cardiac anomaly or unusual brain activity. Okay, so it's poison? My diagnosis is that you've experienced a severe anxiety attack. And I think just an interesting side note, anxiety attack is not something that in psychology <laughs> I usually typically use. If we're going to call something an anxiety type attack, usually we're going to call it a panic attack. And that has a specific set of criteria that we won't go super into, but, you know, like increased heart rate difficulty breathing, you know, all these different pieces that can happen. And a lot of people will colloquially use the term anxiety attack. That usually will mean panic attack, but sometimes it just means I'm having anxiety. So just kind of just throw that out there. It's a little bit of a unique term that's used in the movie. Yeah, very helpful tip. And you're right, you know, Tony and his suit or his like Jarvis system may call it an anxiety attack, but they are not uh, mental health providers or, you know, savvy in the diagnostic criteria or diagnosis terms. Um, we do see with Tony, though, it does seem like when he gets into the suit, he's kind of checking his breathing, his heart, his brain. He does seem to be experiencing some things that would be consistent with a panic attack, like increased heart rate, um, more shallow or rapid breathing, kind of feeling as if he's dying or something is really wrong. Um, so 
panic attacks and panic disorder will definitely be things we go into more depth when we have time, but we'll also provide some resources for those who are interested in some sneak peeks. And I think probably one of the most common, you know, personality traits or psychology related themes that people think of when they think of Tony Stark are narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder. So people might be wondering, you know, is this something that might fit for Tony? I would say definitely. <laughs> so in a previous episode when we covered you, we did discuss narcissistic personality disorder um, and narcissism. I think in Tony's case, we do see an exaggerated sense of self-importance um, and just kind of feeling very entitled and really requiring or wanting a lot of admiration. <laughs> so I think he kind of checks off those boxes there. Yeah, we definitely see more with being very preoccupied with, you know, his successes, whether that's with women that he's been with or with his power and money or um, his you know, accomplishments, even as Iron Man, he's not afraid to kind of show everyone, you know, even at the end of I think it's Iron Man one, he's supposed to keep it a secret that he's Iron Man and just comes out and says it right, because he wants that those accolades and that praise. And that's something very important to him. Exactly. We'll get a little bit into this. But you know, with Peter Parker, when he's dressed as Spider Man, he does it because he doesn't want the credit. He doesn't want people to know he's different or what he's doing. He's just trying to help out. Um, Tony is very much like I want people to know this is me. I want the credit for what I'm doing. Um, we also see very early on that he has this idea of being very superior to others and only wanting to associate with those that are equally powerful. So I think we see this a little bit more with Tony early on, especially in the first movie. There's this gentleman who's trying to meet with him and he has that guy go to the roof and wait for him and never shows up, right? So he's very selective and kind of thinks he's better than others. I do think as the movie or as the Marvel Cinematic Universe progresses, I think we see t Tony become a little bit more relatable, a little bit more caring. But early on, he definitely has this kind of like, I'm better than you, stay away. I'm only going to give you give you the time of day if I'm going to get something from it, or I think you are an equal. Mm -hmm. There is a scene actually where he's talking to Nick Fury and does even admit that he has narcissism. So at least there's some self-awareness, <laughs> I guess. Uh personality overview, Mr. Stark displays compulsive behavior. In my own defense, that was last week. Textbook narcissism. Agreed? Yeah, he definitely, I think, realizes his own arrogance and like kind of like you know, being kind of boastful and pretentious at times. He he often uses humor, I think, to deflect, but in some of his humor, there's definitely some um, truth and reality when he's describing himself. And I think I like what you said about him kind of changing throughout the MCU story arc, you know, as he kind of develops, when we learn more about him. And I think you can particularly see that through his relationship with Spider-Man or Peter Parker. Um, so as they first start off, you know, he's seen as this very like intimidating, harsh, kind of critical, like mentor, boss, supervisor kind of situation. <laughs> um, but their relationship really develops into something much more than that by like the later movies. Definitely. I think it's interesting to compare Spider-Man and Tony Stark, right? Because in Tony Stark, we have this very self-assured, confident, pretentious, narcissistic guy. And then in Peter Parker, we have this really, you know, also very smart and intelligent, but very shy teenager who's, you know, just trying to fit in and be a good kid. <laughs> yeah. And I think a consistent theme across all of the different versions of Spider-Man is that he is this kind of awkward, you know, trying to figure himself out. Obviously, in this version, we see him a little bit younger, I think, than in some of the previous Spider-Man movies. But, you know, he's kind of that typical awkward teenager. 
Yes, and, you know, he's kind of trying to express himself, trying to fit in with peers. Unfortunately, you know, especially in the newest versions of Spider-Man, we do see that he is not treated very well by others. He attempts to make those connections, but we hear him being called names. Sub-penis, Parker! (laughs) You guys are losers. He kind of has a very small social support, a very small circle of friends. Um, and that way may be more similar to Tony. Tony also has a smaller circle of those, like, actual, like, kind of true close relationships. Um, so, you know, just a lot of difficulty kind of fitting in. And also at such an important stage in adolescence, that's what all teenagers are doing, right? Trying to figure out who they are and where they fit in. And we definitely see Peter Parker struggling with that. And I think another parallel to draw between Peter and Tony is also kind of this, the family history there. Mm-hmm. So we know that um, through the different origin stories and different versions of the movies that Peter has lost his parents at a young age and is being taken care of by his aunt. And, you know, that it's not covered quite as much in um, the MCU movies, but we do learn through like the different comics or, you know, other versions of the story arc that, you know, he has a lot of grief related to losing his family members and um, not just his parents, but even other caregivers later in his story. I agree. I think with Peter Parker, particularly, we all know that he loses his uncle Ben and there's a lot of grief and even guilt associated with that. We're kind of like that mantra of um, with great power comes great responsibility. And Peter Parker really takes that to heart and really sees himself as um, someone who is looking out for the little guy and trying to help others. And he kind of sees that as his, um, you know, burden or his calling, really. One of the other things I think that's really interesting related to Peter Parker is, you know, unlike Iron Man, you know, Iron Man creates his technology and his weapons and uses power in that way. Peter Parker is bitten by a spider and develops these, like, actual powers. um, And he wears a mask or a costume to kind of hide, you know, he still wants to be a normal teen. But one of the things that's interesting is in wearing that mask, he kind of lowers his own self-awareness, which at times allows him to be more outgoing, more humorous. You have a metal arm? That is awesome, dude. I don't know if you've been in a fight before, but there's usually not this much talking. All right, sorry, my bad. Definitely less shy than Peter Parker without the Spider-Man mask. So I think it's interesting to see and kind of as he ages, what impact that will have on his like development and, you know, how his personality shapes up. And I think there's also a parallel to be drawn. You know, most teenagers aren't running around with... (laughs) Um, superpowers and in masks trying to save the world but I do think there is something to be said for this like psychological phenomenon where when you are you know perceiving that you're kind of outside of your typical role like whether you're you know on um, a sports team or you're performing in a play or a musician or kind of these different ways that you might kind of take yourself a little bit away from you know how you typically see yourself I feel like that's commonly said for teenagers but adults too right Mm -hmm. that like oh like I didn't know you could sing or you could dance (laughs) or you could act like that you seem like a totally different person on stage than when I see you normally it reminds me of when Tony Stark tells Peter Parker, like, come with me, I'm going to take you to Berlin. And Peter Parker's like, I can't, I have homework, right? So we definitely see that dichotomy of like who he is as Peter Parker and who he is as Spider-Man and then who he's going to become. <laughs> 
I think, you know, kind of related to that too, Tony and Peter, as Dr. Fran alluded to, we do really see the evolution of their relationship throughout a lot of the movies. Tony recruits Peter Parker and then does serve kind of like a lot of people compare it to a mentor or even a father-son relationship at times. You know, there's times where Tony praises him, gives him advice about going to college and different things, or even scolds him. (laughs) So they really have, you know, really developed this robust relationship together. Okay, it's not working out. I'm going to need the suit back. I'm nothing without this suit. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it, okay? Gotta sound like my dad. Absolutely. And then you see as the films progress, I think especially in like Infinity Wars, um, you see that Tony really starts to respect Peter and be more open, you know, as Tony's developing and being more vulnerable and being more, you know, okay with expressing emotions and different things like that. He's able to show appreciation for Peter in a lot more ways than he had in some of the previous films. Kid, you're an Avenger now. Well, I know we're going to talk a lot more about Tony and Peter's relationship with our guest, so I think this is actually a really good time to go ahead and introduce him. So we've discussed some of the psychology behind popular Marvel characters, and now we're going to shift and discuss how these themes seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe can be applied to other psychological concepts. Specifically, today, we'll be talking about the process of developing a career in psychology. To help us tackle this very important topic, we are thrilled to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Andres de los Reyes. We are super excited to have Dr. Dalos Reyes on today. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Maryland at College Park, um, where he directs the Comprehensive Assessment and Intervention Program. He is also the author of over 100 peer-reviewed articles, which is a lot. And he is uh, the author of the recent book, The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox, which we're super excited to ask him about today. He's also the editor of the Journal of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology and the founding program chair of the Future Directions Forum, which is an annual meeting that focuses on providing early career researchers with advice on all elements of academic work. And actually, I was um, fortunate enough to attend the Future Directions Forum this year, and I highly recommend it. Super helpful, um, and it's super useful, especially for people at all different levels of early career training. Yeah, I was planning to attend, and I think I had a conflict, so I'll look forward to joining next year, yeah. or this upcoming year, rather. It was definitely different since it was virtual, but it was still really useful, <laughs> and a lot of great speakers and networking and things like that. In addition to all of his professional accolades, Dr. De Los Reyes is also a fellow movie and media lover, so he is a perfect podcast guest for today. So welcome, Dr. De Los Reyes. We are so excited to be speaking to you today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. (laughs) So before we jump in, let's help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. What are some of your favorite TV shows and movies? Right now, there's a bunch of really good ones. Uh, I, uh, this last year, I really enjoyed Euphoria. I, I, it was such a, a fantastic um, uh, characterization of, of, of adolescent life. Uh, just, a, just a lot of really great stories in there. Uh, I, 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 got, I got really into Westworld. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, Westworld's fantastic. Uh, all the seasons have been great, uh, and and more recently, um, Lovecraft Country uh, uh, premiered on, on HBO a couple weeks ago, and it, it's uh, it's it's co-produced by Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams, oh. and and everything you enjoy about about both of their work in one place 
and just a, a bunch of really great themes. I just, uh, yeah, the, the, those are the TV shows. And, and then usually movies, I gravitate towards a combination of science fiction, uh, you know, you know, horror films and, um, uh, and documentaries. I actually like watching a lot of documentaries. Nice. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that movie you mentioned, or the TV show you mentioned with Abrams and uh, Jordan Peele, that one's been on, is in my queue. It definitely looks interesting. So I'm excited to start that one. I've heard good things. Yeah, I'm over here writing Very down, really things, yeah. writing down notes of all these different TV shows you're mentioning to add them to my list. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, awesome. You are definitely, uh, I think, in the right place here. We talk about all these kind of TV shows and movies, and it seems like there's a lot of overlap between the three of us. So we really love that we can see that your you know, um, love of movies come through, especially in your new book, The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox. Um, and you use some really great metaphors that exemplify the different themes and topics that you discuss. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about this book and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Uh, so, uh, as uh, Fran mentioned, I uh, I, I run a, a conference every year that's designed to give early career researchers uh, tips and advice on how to do science good, and and uh, mm-hmm. and we always get uh, we always release a survey at the end of each of our meet of our meetings, and we try to get an idea from people about um, you know, what they'd like to see next. And this was back in 2018. Uh, well. We sent out our survey, and that year we did a workshop uh, uh, that was inspired by another book, uh, Houston, We Have a Narrative, which is a really great uh, uh, book about leveraging uh, narrative structure to communicate uh, science effectively hmm. uh, to both your peers but also lay people. And uh, one of the anonymous attendees uh, you know, uh, told us, you know, it was great to see this workshop. Is there a way to take those tools? and repackage them so instead of telling one story which is what Houston we have a narrative is all about how to write one really clear well-written paper sort of take those tools and and combine them fuse them together uh to produce a research program basically what all of us are are tasked to do at the uh once we're done producing a piece uh several pieces of work people want to know what we're all about we're we're usually more than one with one piece of work or several pieces how do you put them all together uh and I hadn't thought about applying the tools that way. So I started thinking about, well, what would that workshop look like? I started putting together slides and, and test driving some of the ideas with my colleagues. And, uh, and then a funny thing happened. I, uh, I have a, a habit of playing movies in the background when I'm working at home because I can't trust myself to, to keep the TV off. <laughs> so I have to have it playing something. If it's playing something and there is seen before, like the news or a new movie, forget it. I'm not going to get anything done. Mm-hmm. So what I do is kind of like ambient noise, like what you use with therapy sessions so nobody hears, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I call it my ambient film. So I'll play a film in the background on my TV that I've seen a bunch of times. And, and, and the more I've seen it, the more fast-paced it is. It's easy for me to tune out but then get reinforced by how much action is happening on the screen. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 it's usually a lot of action films. So for a while, my ambient <laughs> film was Inside Man. That's a good That's Ooh, a, good that's ambient a great film. one. Spotlight. Oh, wow. Spotlight, yeah. was, Spotlight was a really good ambient film, interestingly enough, because oh, wow. all the fast-paced action and, and everybody's head of the story kind of thing. It's a really good film for that. And then for a while, it was several of the Marvel movies, which I've seen with my my son's ten, so I've seen all these movies with him. <laughs> uh, um, but but some of them are really good, so I, I I like having them on over and over and over again. And and for a while I had Captain America: Civil War uh, mm-hmm. playing 
over and over and again. About the hundredth time, <laughs> I, I hit the scene where um, Iron Man meets Spider-Man for the first time. And after seeing that scene so many different times, it clicked for me that that's about as good uh, a representation of mentorship, of a mentoring relationship that I've ever seen. And, uh, and, and once that clicked for me, then the rest of it clicked as well. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is a really great example of where stories and where connected ideas happen, right? Uh, yeah. So the so the whole uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe winds up being a really great metaphor in that respect because each of the superheroes have their own movies and they have their own self-contained stories. And each of those stories connects everybody else's stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great place to sort of uh, comment and draw ideas upon how networks of ideas and, and stories and communication all come together. And it just so happens that academia has all those kinds of characteristics. Wow, that's so awesome. And I think inspirational because I know I have a similar working style, um, but usually I have like the office on or something in the background. So I don't know if I'll be deriving any um, uh, brilliant ideas from that show. But I'm glad, you know, it's it's really cool that even though it was an ambient movie, so to speak, you were still soaking it in and seeing those connections and writing this really great book that helps people at this really critical stage um, and makes it um, understandable in a really relatable and fun way. Yeah, like, uh, you know, after I was working more and more through the concepts and trying to figure out which metaphors work from those films and where they intersect with academic work, it also occurred to me some of the reasons why this was so easy to do, right? The Marvel Cinematic Universe costs hundreds of millions of dollars to produce, right? Really yeah. expensive. In order to make it work financially, you have to use tried and true replicable principles to consistently tell a clear story over and over and over again without sounding too formulaic. And so in, after a while, it occurred to me that, that really good films do a great job of communicating very simple ideas, sometimes very complex ideas, in as clear a fashion as possible. I've come to think of the film industry as kind of like the NIH for storytelling. Right, The NIH spends hundreds of millions of dollars every year trying to improve public health in the U.S. The film industry spends more than that to try to tell stories, expensive stories, as easily and as simply as, pos as possible and as cost-effective as possible. And so if you're going to find any one place and say to yourself, what are the active ingredients on telling a uh, delivering a clear message? The movie industry is where it's at. Because the the the, uh, the the margin for error is very small, and so you have to get the story right, and and uh, and and so so what some people find frustrating about films, about the film industry, that it's risk averse, that I'm hearing the same stories with the same characters over and over and over again. I see, as from a scientific perspective, I see that's gold for me. I want to see stuff replicate over and over and over <laughs> again. And so if, if I got an equation for great storytelling, I will watch the same movie over and over again without any problem at all, because I'm going to get something out of it from my work. Absolutely. And I think the other piece of it that we think about is, you know, movies and especially like massive movies like MCU movies are seen by so many people. And so not only are you having these stories replicated, yeah. but they're reaching, reaching such a wider audience than one peer reviewed article that one, you know, person writes and then is only viewed by a super niche 
you know, group of people in the psychology field. Um, you already touched on this a little bit, Dr. Dallas Reyes, but one of the themes you really talk a lot about in your book is mentoring. Um, and actually, you mentioned a mm-hmm. clip between Spider-Man and, or sorry, Peter Parker um, in the scene and uh, Tony Stark meeting for the first time. And I'm wondering if we could actually play it for the listeners and talk a little bit about it. And anyway, look, um, I definitely did not apply for your grant. Nuh-uh. Me first. Okay. Quick question of the rhetorical variety. That's you, right? Um, no. What do you, what do you yeah. mean? Look at you go. Wow, nice catch. 3,000 pounds, 40 miles an hour. It's not easy. You got mad skills. That's all, that's all on YouTube, though, right? I mean, that's where you found that. Because you know that's all fake. It's all done on the computer. Mm-hmm. I, it's like that video. Uh, what yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean like those UFOs over Phoenix? Exactly. Oh. Where have we? So, you're the spider-ling, crime-fighting spider. You're Spider-Boy? Spider-Man. Not in that onesie, you're not. It's not a onesie. I believe this. I was actually having a really good day today, you know, Mr. Stark. Didn't miss my train. This perfectly good DVD player was just sitting there and algebra test. Nailed it. Who else knows? Anybody? Nobody. Not even your unusually attractive aunt? No. No, 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 no. If she knew, she would freak out. And and when she freaks out, I freak out. You know what I think is really cool? This webbing. (sighs) Tensile strength is off the charts. Who manufactured that? I did. Climbing walls? How are you doing that? Adhesive gloves? It's a long story. I was... Lordy, can you even see in these? Yes, yes, I can't. Look, I can't. I can't, I can't see in those, okay? It's just that when whatever happened happened, it's like my senses have been dialed to 11. There's, there's way too much input, so they, they just kind of help me focus. You're in dire need of an upgrade. Systemic, top to bottom. 100 point restoration, that's why I'm here. Why are you doing this? I gotta know, what's your MO? What gets you out of that twin bed in the morning? Because because I've been me my whole life and I've had these powers for six months. Mm-hmm. I read books, I build computers. And, and yeah, I would love to play football, but I, I couldn't then, so I shouldn't now. Sure, because you're different. Exactly. But I can't tell anybody that, so I'm not. Look, when you can do the things that I can, but you don't, and then the bad things happen. They happen because of you. All right, so I think this is one, in this clip we're hearing where Tony Stark and Peter Parker are really meeting for the first time. Tony Stark is approaching uh, Peter um, with an internship, kind of, or so to speak, or uh, a position. Um, I think kind of, we'll tie this a little bit back to more like early career and becoming a psychologist, but I wish that's how it worked. Like I was just approached for uh, internships and fellowships and didn't have to actually apply. Um, But Dr. Dales Reyes, um, you know, in your book, you do draw the analogies between Peter and Tony of that as a mentorship, kind of similar to what we would see in, in graduate school. Can you describe a little bit more about those similarities with those relationships? So to draw the similarities and make them really clear, it's important to sort of think about a concept that's endemic to 
basically all grad students and ba anybody who's aspiring to be one and aspiring to, to, to use uh, graduate training to, for career advancement. And it's imposter syndrome. Right. So a lot of us have heard this term. And imposter syndrome is kind of like an unfounded set of beliefs, thoughts, and feelings that revolve around this uh, you know, general notion that a lot of us have that when we're going to look for graduate training, we don't think we can cut it. When we get admitted, we think, well, why me? And then when we get there, when we actually start graduate school, we say to ourselves, oh man, I'm gonna get found out really soon. And this happens all throughout your career. Like that happens, grad school, yeah. If you, you know, your first job, most definitely. Uh, and then even after, when, when people tell you, yeah, you can stay and keep your job if you want. Like, like imposter syndrome just never goes away. <laughs> and what's great about that opening scene with uh, uh, Iron Man and Spider-Man is that it's in a completely different context. It's not grad school, but Peter Parker's showing imposter syndrome through and through the whole way through. Mm -hmm. You see it right from the beginning. Uh, like, oh, who? What are you doing here? I'm Peter. That that's all of that is is a, as a recognition of this this person who I worship is is here right now, and 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 you know why? What 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 have I done to deserve this? Uh, when when Stark is starting to reveal some of the things he's figured out about Parker, that he can do some really amazing things, you'll, you'll see Parker downplay it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, another element of, uh, of, gra of graduate training, you know, especially when you're applying. The, the parts that I love about those scene, that scene is that it's basically got all of the grad school application process in three minutes. <laughs> it's, it's seeing your CV. Why, why, why do you do all this stuff? And then it's got a really nice element that's that's true of all really strong mentor relationships. I've I've experienced this with all of my all my mentees in, in in grad school. At some point, you, if you were to ask the question, "Who's the student?" the 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 reasonable answer is both, mm -hmm. because when when Parker at the end of that says, uh, "When you can do the things that I can." but you don't. And then the bad things happen. They happen because of you. And the reason why that line is so important is not just because it's a, it's a much better version of with great power comes great responsibility. It's that Parker has learned that years and it took Tony Stark years to learn that. Mm -hmm. Right. And he actually learns that in that movie. <laughs> and here he's got this kid, this young kid who's already figured it out without making the same amount of mistakes that Tony Stark does. Um, you know, so it, it's 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 just it's 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 brilliant. It's it's just all these really great themes that are endemic of mentoring relationships, all in one self-contained space. And it's not a doctoral mentor and a grad student. It's a couple of combo characters. I agree. I think you know I hadn't really seen it from that lens until we had our initial chat and you know perusing your book. And now when I went back and rewatched a lot of these scenes and the movies, you definitely have that in your mind. You know, even throughout, it's like. Um, Tony Stark recruited Peter and then he really is providing like guidance and advice you know sometimes he's not so happy with Peter Parker other times you know he's really trying to provide support and upgrading him in a lot of ways um, but you definitely see that it goes both ways you know uh, Stark learns a lot from uh, Peter Parker uh, vice versa so I think it is a really neat um, analogy for that relationship mm -hmm. and the additional element of the backstory that's really interesting about this is that um, with a lot of these characters, Iron Man, Thor, 
uh, you know, um, uh, you know, ca uh, Captain America. They all started off and they had their own film. Mm -hmm. Peter Parker doesn't get the, uh, uh, a film right away. What he gets is a few minutes in somebody else's movie in the hopes that he can convince an audience into thinking, I saw him for like 15 minutes. I love it. I want to see if I want to see him for two hours. Right. And, and that's a, that's essentially a key component of graduate training as well. We all start off in our mentor story, in our mentor's research program. And it's up to us to find bits and pieces of that program that we find exciting, that we want to elaborate on, that we want to continue once we leave, once we leave our, our mentor story and, and we get the privilege of being able to tell our own stories. That, that, that other little piece of it is really interesting. And, it, and, it, and it's happenstance because Part of the reason why the the uh, the producers of the MCU series decided to go that route was people have already seen the Spider-Man story a few other times. You know, yeah. Peter Parker's the third Spider-Man <laughs> in the last fifteen years. You know, so so uh, so so what can we do differently? Well, one thing we can do differently is let's get rid of the origin story piece. Let's embed them in in uh, in, uh, in Captain America and see what happens. Yeah, I love that we're talking about mentoring because I think it's something that comes up over and over again as such a core component of a successful trajectory. Obviously, you can get through graduate school and internship and postdoc with, you know, without a great mentor, but it does make a huge, huge difference when you do have a great and supportive and helpful mentor. Hopefully, people don't have mentors that are, you know, interpersonally like Tony Stark. Um, he's a little bit harsher, <laughs> harsher or... <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> you know, a little more abrasive than I would ideally have as a graduate mentor. But, you know, still that kind of same idea. I love that idea of thinking about um, those pieces of, you know, what can you be contributing to your mentor's work that then, you know, could, could, helps you get that foot in the door for your own research program or grant or book or publication down the road. Yeah. There's a push and pull with this bit of mentoring. It's that all things being equal, we'd love to have a lot of control over what we study, what we pursue, and how we pursue it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just the way our, our doctoral training programs are. We have we have these mentoring models of, uh, of, of relationships, and although at times you can find them kind of stifling, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it, it's, uh, it's in, so, in some respects, well, you know, useful in the same way that, that um, a, uh, an incubator is, is, a, is, a, is useful, in that it gives you a controlled environment to, to learn the important things, uh, and it gives you room to fail, it, uh, and 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 that winds up in the uh, once you telescope out into a, into a career, you look back on it and you say to yourself, "Man, I'm, I'm really glad I learned it there, because if I learned it like on the job, that would be a really bad mistake. That would be a really bad mistake. At least <laughs> here, I, I, I make a mistake, and and it didn't hurt that bad that I felt." I think that's a great point, and it kind of actually is a nice kind of segue into another another one of the interesting themes that has come up in discussing the Marvel movies, which is this idea of compromise and navigating conflict. So mm -hmm. along, you know, kind of learning within that incubator with support and growing, this is something that you also have to learn and navigate, um, especially, I think, in terms of research. Um, so, you know, what do you do when you encounter opposing forces, and then how do we see that play out in the MCU? universe in, in a way that's similar yeah uh i uh i love this scene it's in it's in another it, it's in it's in that same movie actually that captain america movie um uh uh captain america's love interest uh he uh you know spoiler alert gets back together with her at the end but 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 uh, <laughs> but uh but over the course of the of the of the of the uh mcu uh there's these 
sort of like a touches and goes with the, with this with this love interest and and uh, and uh, and at some point uh, part of the way through the MC uh, the first this first phase of the MCU uh, she passes away and they have this uh, this uh, this funeral and it's a eulogy. Should we actually listen to a bit of the eulogy? That sounds like a good idea. Margaret Carter was known to most as a founder of Shield, but I just knew her as Aunt Peggy. She had a photograph in her office, Aunt Peggy standing next to JFK. As a kid, that was pretty cool, but it was a lot to live up to, which is why I never told anyone we were related. I asked her once how she managed to master diplomacy and espionage in a time when no one wanted to see a woman succeed at either. And she said, compromise where you can. But where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say, no, you move. Yeah, it's one of my favorite scenes in all the movies uh, because it happens during a point in the film where a key character in the film, Steve Rogers, Captain America, is, is experiencing ambivalence about whether or not he should pursue a course of action or, or back off. Right? Uh, and it's, uh, it, you know, you, you hate to say to yourself that you have a mantra that's based on a, uh, based on like a scene in a Disney film. <laughs> but if, but if I can say to myself that, I, that, I, that I, I, I try to live a line in a movie, it's, the, it's that one. Uh, because that's a lot of what research is. It's such a solitary enterprise in that you might work with a team but sometimes you work with an idea that only you believe in, right? And, and it's an idea where you say to yourself, this is really going against what a lot of people think about this particular thing that I care about. But I got the suspicion that I see something in this that no one else sees. And, and sometimes that idea, that line of, of, of work is, uh, you know, insurmountably uh, contradictory to what to what people accept, that you might say to yourself, it's too risky to go out on this path. And then sometimes you say uh, you believe in it so much, where you say to yourself, I have to go out on this path, even if it means the work becomes harder, even if it means because because that's where a lot of really great ideas happen. So like you know what I tell students sometimes is every once in a while you have to say to yourself, if I don't plant myself like a tree now. Like, what do we miss out on? Because this isn't just me. This isn't just a thing that I'm pursuing because I'm, I'm personally curious. No, if, if you back off of an idea and it's an important one and a useful one, then it's just like what, uh, what, uh, what Parker says at the, end of, at the end of that. You know, when you can do the things that I can, but you don't, and then the bad things happen, that's on you. That's, that's your fault now. You know, so, I mean, and then the tough part's really just picking out where those places are like uh but then think about parts of our own work uh parts of our own field that if people didn't take a stand where would we be if we didn't if if we didn't take if caspi and moffat didn't take a stand and say you know what it isn't all nature it isn't all nurture sometimes <laughs> it's both mm-hmm. right like like if if they didn't do that i mean imagine how much fewer productive discussions we would be having about those processes 
Right. Yeah, I think it's such an important point, and I think you're right. It's very nuanced, right? Like throughout our careers, we're often having to um, compromise to achieve certain goals and work together, but sometimes there are those things that are just so important or impactful or meaningful that you have to kind of learn, like you're saying, to kind of be that tree and plant those roots and not compromise for those important things, um, but definitely learning when to do which and how to proceed um, in both cases is, I think, uh, a skill set that you definitely learn throughout our careers. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And even thinking about, like you said, there are so many different barriers or hoops that we have to jump through in these different elements of our training or in collaborating and then kind of figuring out, like, what are the things that are worth jumping those through those hoops for or, you know, submitting the, you know, this paper for the fifth time or this grant for the seventh time or, you know, what are these things that are important enough to continue to put in um, the time and the effort Um you know, for that like long-term and ideally more overreaching goal than just like for furthering my career. But, you know, a lot of the research and the things that we do are clinically relevant. um, And the goal is to actually help inform better treatments and, you know, assessments and things for individuals that are struggling with, you know, a vast variety of different um, concerns. Yeah. The interesting thing with, with the process of, of encountering those conflicts is that more often than not, like if it's a grant or a paper or, or, or any kind of thing you're working on, the person who's most motivated to get what they want there is usually you. Like there's usually not somebody working against you as hard as you're working for that mm-hmm. thing. Right? <laughs> yeah. and, so, and so to the degree that you sort of remind yourself over and over again, like this, this is hard, but, but once that, that journal says yes, once that funny age says yes, once, uh, you know, you know, once any of these things happen, you get admitted there, no one can take it away from you. It is over. Like that's your thing from now on. Um, and that, that part helps that this isn't like a, like a continual struggle with no pieces in, uh, uh, like in, in between. Awesome. Well, we don't want to give away too much of what you talk about in your book, but are there any other pieces of kind of these <laughs> metaphors relating to the MCU and kind of these different aspects of graduate school that you'd want to share with our listeners for today? Sure. So when you a big chunk of the book's all about building an identity in, in research, building a research program. And when it comes time to, you know, for your next steps, you know, looking for a postdoc, looking for your first job, uh, a lot of people have the instinct of, well, now they want, now they want to know what I've done with my time and what I'm going to do later on. I'm going to wow them with how productive I've been. And, and I would argue that's a big mistake. And the reason why it is, is that when it comes time to deciding between, say, hiring you as a postdoc or a faculty versus somebody else, everyone at that level is about the same on productivity. Everybody's active. Everybody's put, you know, that short list, it's basically a bunch of people that have been busy, right? So the trick there isn't so much tell them how busy you've been. It's tell them how easy it is for you to tell them who don't have your expertise what you do, right? So, so the idea there is to communicate and tell, and tell a compelling account of your work. And there isn't any other place uh, that, that, I can, that I can think of any industry that, that does storytelling as good as, as, as a film industry. And so I, I kind of think about telling your story as figuring out like which of these pieces of work can I organize in such a sequence where I tell people, uh, you know, I deliver those active ingredients to story. And the, I, the, it's three pieces, really. It's, and, you know, uh, it's get them excited, right? Like 
Tell them about a piece of work you did, a finding you had that would draw them in, that engages them. Once you do that, then you're, then you're trying to create a conflict. You're doing it. Every, every story starts off, I'm going to engage you. I'm going I'm to show you a new world that you've never seen before. And right after that, I'm going to ruin it for you. I'm going to throw in a, a big monkey wrench thing that's going to, that's going to, that's going to really sully things up. You do not know how this, is, this ends. And then I'm going to make up, for, make, make up, make up, uh, make it up to you. All right. So, so, so it's all about engagement, conflict, resolution, engagement, conflict, resolution. The, the more you use those principles, you know, as you're organizing pieces of work together, as you're, as you're talking to people, even as you're writing emails, as you're, do, as you're doing anything in your life, all, you know, all of our, our brains are all pattern recognition machines. That's all our audiences are. They're a brain that recognizes patterns. And, and, and that's the pattern that, that grasps people on the most. I mean, it's the reason why our hobbies are all about stories. You're reading a book. You're watching a TV show. You're, you're, you're watching a film. It's all storytelling. Yeah. And, the, and, and your brains don't become different just because you, you go show up to work. You know, <laughs> stories work there too. Thank you so much, Dr. Dallas Reyes. I think that that's just such uh, fascinating and interesting tips and information. And I really love the way you, you know, kind of similar to your approach, have really weaved this story um, and put it out there to be so helpful. So remember to please check out Dr. Dallas Reyes's book, The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox. We'll have links and information regarding his book on our website, along with other resources from today's episode. So typically, we do like to discuss our overall impressions of the movie or the psychological themes. Um, you know, the MCU is very large, so we're not going to talk specifically <laughs> about our impressions of all the different movies today. But we thought we could maybe just start by talking about maybe our favorite movie from the MCU and our favorite character. So, Dr. Dalish Reyes, do you want to start? Wow. That's a, <laughs> you know, it's changed. It really has changed over time. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I used to love all the ones that have been my ambient film, the films before. Uh, and you know, I'll tell you my favorite, my favorite ones now are, are, uh, are infinity war and Endgame, Um, and for different reasons, like, uh, like, uh, in infinity war, uh, you see, the culmination of a, of a bunch of different character arcs or the, or the, or the middle of them. Like, like I, I love what they did with the Hulk that they basically embedded a, the trilogy of Hulk, the trilogy of stories of Hulk starts with Ragnarok. And then uh, where, where he's like, I'm not quite sure that I can, uh, that I'll be able to change back mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, to, to banner if I ever become Hulk again. And then in infinity where the conflict happens where Hulk says, I'm not coming out anymore. I'm done. I'm checking. You're you're on your own, buddy. And then and then at the end, the the progression of that arc, an endgame, where 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 Banner says, "I'm I can't say that I'm either one of these guys. I'm both." And 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 if you and if I find a way to integrate them, and have them work, uh, you know, you know, work cohesively as opposed to against each other, then I'm a better person. Uh, if I just acknowledge the fact that 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 that, that, that these are both elements of my identity. It's it's just it's just a brilliant set of stories, and, and and those are weaved and and versions of those kinds of stories. So the 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 full character arc of 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 Stark being realized, where where he's where he says to himself, "This can't be just about me; it has to be about everybody else as well." And also that that Steve Rogers, Captain America's character, does the exact opposite thing. 
but he starts off from being being all about the collective, all about everybody else. And at the tail end of the of the entire story, uh, arc of stories, it's I got to do a little bit of this for myself too, right? You know, do a little bit of what of what Tony Stark says, living living for you. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, I I really like how, how the whole how the whole um, uh, MCU culminates in that space with, with all these different stories being told in a more cohesive way because they're pretty a pretty good instantiation of what the entire universe is. I'm going to have to jump in and agree so we don't talk about this beforehand. But um, my favorite, I would have to say it's hard to pick like a specific one just with how expansive the universe is. But I do love the Avengers for very similar reasons. I think it's just so cool, like especially in the later movies where you are having all the characters come together. I feel like, you know, Thor... I think when he really has the other players to kind of go off of, uh, he's just so funny, like especially, you know, Chris Pratt's character, I feel like, and Thor are just like hilarious together. They kind of have that rivalry. So I really enjoy those, like getting to see the worlds come together and also for like a greater purpose. Um, uh, so I love the Avenger movies. And I also really like the first Guardian of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy. I think that yeah. was super funny. It. I think it's impossible to pick like one favorite character and I think like in thinking about a character I'm kind of gonna I don't know if this is allowed necessarily but I'm a big X-Men fan so I love mm -hmm. the X-Men they're not in the cinematic universe but it, they're in the Marvel comics universe not yet. So yeah. they do have their own movies yeah but they haven't been weaved yeah. in yet so I'm hopeful for that <laughs> I like how your favorite character is still a whole group of people not an individual yeah. character <laughs> <laughs> I have some favorite X-Men as well. But <laughs> What about you, Dr. Fran? You know, for the longest time, I would have said that Guardians of the Galaxy was my favorite Marvel movie. I think they have such great characters. Chris Pratt is great. Groot is great. Super endearing and just a fun, unique um, family favorite, I think. But I honestly will have to throw Black Panther in the mix. I think it is yeah. such a great movie. The visuals are amazing, the actor's amazing, and it just has such a broader impact than just your typical superhero movie. You know, we talk about media representation a lot on the podcast, um, and so particularly for the black and African-American community, it's super important um, to have a movie like this out there. I think we should also acknowledge that Chadwick Boseman did just pass away recently, and so our hearts go out to his family, friends, um, and fans, obviously a very big loss to a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. I like even, you know, in the later Avengers, how the Black Panther characters are woven in. And it is just such a great representation, you know, for black African-American superheroes. Also, the representation of women, strong, black, mm -hmm. powerful women. I think it just has done a lot for, you know, those things, as Dr. Friend mentioned, that we really talk about the importance of, of being able to see more diverse representation on our screens. They're brilliant stories and just and, and fantastic examples of 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 uh, of uh, you know all the things that that make matters relevant to diversity, equity, and inclusion so important. Yeah, very. I think you're you're 100 right. Just a very important piece and very interesting piece of this massive universe that we have only begun to touch on today. So session's over for Marvel Cinematic Universe today. Don't forget to check out our website for resources and a glossary of new terms. Please let us know your thoughts on Marvel, the Cinematic Universe, your favorite characters. We'd love to hear it. We'd also love to hear any additional questions that you have about psychology and what movies or TV shows you want us to put on the couch and break down next. And thank you so much, Dr. De Los Reyes, for being with us today. We've really enjoyed having you on. You are a fellow lover of movies and psychology and how those things interact. So we've really enjoyed having you on today. It's been delightful being here. Thanks so much. Yes, it's been amazing. And you're our first guest. And I don't think we could have chosen a better guest to have on. It's just been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much. 
It's very kind. Thank you. Find and follow us on social media. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon, creative director, Eric, and webmaster, Don. 